from Michigan Radio. This is the It's Just Politics edition of Stateside. I'm Zoe Clark. Governor Gretchen Whitmer and her Republican opponent, Tudor Dixon, debated for the second and last time this week. Abortion, education, inflation, and the economy were top of mind. We know that there is global inflation. It is not unique to Michigan. It is not unique to the United States. A governor cannot fix global inflation. But what I can do is put more money in your pockets. This governor has not done anything to help inflation, but I would put money back in your pockets. I would make sure we have that child tax credit. I would make sure that we reduce the income tax. We will be joined by the political roundtable as we break down what each candidate had to say and ask, but who's really watching? But first, as we edge closer to Election Day, more and more attention is being paid to what's actually going to happen besides voting at the polls on Tuesday, November 8th. Here's Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson when she was asked last month on Face the Nation what she and other secretaries of state across the country were most worried about as the midterms approach. Violence and disruption on Election Day, first and foremost, uh, and in the the days surrounding the election. And secondly, uh, there's a concern about the ongoing spread of misinformation, which, of course, fuels the potential for additional threats, harassment and and even violence on Election Day. Clara Hendrickson is politics reporter at the Detroit Free Press, and she's been looking into one particular group of Election 2020 deniers and their plans for Election Day in Michigan. Hi, Clara. Welcome back. Hi, Zoe. Thanks so much for having me. Oh, and thanks for your work. So in this piece in the Freep, you note that Michigan is one of several states targeted by this group, the America Project. You note it's led by allies of former President Donald Trump to, and I quote you here, recruit citizen election monitors in ways election experts worry blurs the lines between lawful oversight and vigilantism. First, can you just explain what the America Project is? Sure. It's a national group that's spearheaded by prominent Trump allies and purveyors of election conspiracies, namely uh, Michael Flynn, who served as Trump's former national security advisor, and former Overstock.com CEO Patrick Byrne. The two of them have sort of toured the country in, in the wake of the 2020 election and continued to spread the lie that that election was stolen from Trump. And now they're involved in this national campaign targeting multiple battleground states, Michigan included, to basically encourage citizen oversight of pretty much every aspect of the election process. And heading to Michigan's midterm election, that means recruiting folks to serve as election challengers at polling locations and then counting rooms where they're going to be processing absentee ballots. There's actually this manual on the Michigan for America First website, and it has a checklist for challengers specifically at polling locations. Can you give us some examples? Sure. So I should note that Michigan for America First is an affiliate of this larger organization, America Project. Mm -hmm. And one of the guides that they have for election challengers on their website includes a very lengthy checklist for challengers to make extensive observations about what they're seeing at the polls and at counting boards. And some of the items that are included in the checklist 
have the potential to cause confusion. I was looking at the one for challengers who are going to be stationed at counting rooms, and it asks them to see if they see election workers verifying voter signatures on absentee ballots. Voter signature verification, though, does not take place in the counting room. It takes place at the clerk's office before the ballots are even sent for counting. So that's just sort of one example where you could have challengers being instructed in a way that doesn't really make sense because they can't practically observe what they're being asked to. So this isn't violence, although one could certainly worry it could lead to that. But again, this idea almost of creating confusion, which then could lead again to what feels like this cyclical issue of folks not trusting elections, but maybe it's because simply they're hearing too much misinformation. Right. So I think it's important to note that one of the things that's included in this manual that I was looking at is an incident report form for challengers to fill out. And it asks them to attach things like videos, uh, audio recordings, any photos, and longstanding rules for challengers have prohibited them from doing that. And a lot of election officials have been sounding the alarm since the 2020 election, where we saw photos and videos of election workers circulating widely on social media, which made them targets for intimidation and harassment. So there's a concern there that some of these rules that have been uh, that are, you know, at issue in pending litigation could cause confusion, sow chaos and potentially uh, open the door for violent confrontations in the aftermath of the election and potentially on Election Day. You spoke with Chris Thomas for your piece. He's the incredibly well-respected former longtime elections director in Michigan. What did he have to say? He is concerned about the ways in which observers are being asked to uh, do things that could potentially uh, open the way for, for voter intimidation. For instance, one of the things monitors are being asked to do is if they monitor drop boxes at night to show up armed. Obviously, folks have a a Second Amendment right, but that could quickly lead into blurring the lines between um, voter intimidation and someone lawfully exercising their right to bear arms. He's particularly worried, however, about the instruction um, that folks who are behind uh, this effort and supporting it have given to record what they see at polling locations, record what they see at counting boards, which they do not currently have the green light to do, but that that could really um, lead to an explosive situation, particularly, um, you know, in the aftermath of what we saw in Detroit in 2020, where there was kind of hostility between challengers and election workers, challengers aligned with former President Donald Donald Trump calling election workers to stop the count. Those are all sort of uh, concerns that are top of mind for election officials who would love to prevent that kind of chaos again. Clara, I want to talk about this idea of taking video where uh, things are happening at the polls. So last week, the Michigan Court of Claims ruled that a manual that Michigan Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson issued earlier this year that it violated election law. Now, this manual had guidance about what poll challengers can and can't do. That guidance was challenged by the Michigan Republican Party. Can you explain what happened here and just how this dovetails then with this broader issue of what is and isn't allowed at the polls? Sure. So one thing that Republicans had taken issue with that was included in the election challenger manual is this prohibition on election challengers from possessing electronic devices such as phones or laptops 
in the counting rooms that process absentee ballots. So the Michigan Court of Claims judge in this case ruled that challengers could possess those devices. That order um, is currently the subject of an appeal that Secretary of State Jocelyn Benson, she has made, she's requested that the Court of Appeals suspend the implementation of the order, in part because she is concerned, as other election officials are, that it's basically impractical to police how challengers are using electronic devices. There are going to be hundreds of challengers in some cases in a single counting room, and it's going to be hard you know, to know if they're making phone calls to a family member or friend or calling political operatives to unlawfully share results that are coming in early before the polls close. Or you might have challengers surreptitiously photographing and videotaping what they're seeing. You already have uh, former state senator Patrick Kolbeck, who's sort of endorsed this challenger recruitment effort from the America Project, saying that the the court of claims order empowers challengers challengers to record what they're seeing. But if you read the order, there's nothing in it that says that yes, challengers can record what they're seeing. Clara. I'd love your view after you've spent so much time and, and brain space digging into these issues just to help us all better understand, like, how worried should the average voter be about all of this? Yeah, I think that's a really important question, because sometimes it's hard to know um, in what ways some of the efforts by election deniers to recruit monitors is it's bloviating Um or if we actually might see some of what we've seen play out in other states like Arizona, where you have Dropbox monitors uh, that have prompted complaints by voters that you know they're being intimidated. So I think uh, the thing to keep in mind is that while election deniers have had a lot of time to strategize and prepare for how they're going to try and um, exercise some sort of oversight over the upcoming election, election officials are also really prepared for the possibility of voter intimidation or harassment. Um, Same goes for anything that their election workers might encounter. So they've partnered with local law enforcement, and they're not going to have any sort of tolerance for folks who are trying to meddle or interfere with the process. Clara Hendrickson is politics reporter for the Detroit Free Press. Clara, thank you so much for your work on all of this. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Let's now turn to our political roundtable. Rick Pluta is here. He is the co-host of It's Just Politics and senior capital correspondent for the Michigan Public Radio Network. Hi, Rick. Hi, Zoe. Alexis Wiley is here. She is founder of Moment Strategies and former chief of staff to Detroit Mayor Mike Duggan. Welcome to the show, Alexis. Thank you. Glad to be here. Oh, it's so good to have you. And the one and only Rich Shuba is here, founder of the survey research firm Glenn Gariff Group. He worked under former Governor John Engler. Hey, Rich. Great to be here. Oh, so good to have all of you here. So Governor Gretchen Whitmer and Republican Tudor Dixon debated for the second and last time this week for one hour at Oakland University. I think it's important to ask a question. Mrs. Dixon has said she will eliminate the retirement tax. How is she going to balance the budget? She has said that she will cut income tax. That's $12 billion on the budget. How is she going to balance that? She's toyed with a sales tax. Is she going to raise the sales tax by an additional eight cents? I've talked about repealing the income tax over time, a responsible reduction of the income tax and removing it over an eight to 10 year period. This is not a radical concept. 
we have nine states in the nation that already have no income tax. The candidates spoke also about abortion, energy costs, uh, education and school safety, and COVID-19. I want to start with you, Rich Shuba. You have watched many a gubernatorial debate in your day. What was your takeaway from this hour? Uh, My takeaway was it didn't change a darn thing. Hmm. Uh, You know, I think people that watch this debate, they pretty much knew where they were already. And if you were with Whitmer, you're still with Whitmer. If you were with Dixon, you're still with Dixon. And I don't think it changed much. Both candidates had their punches. Uh, Both candidates stood up against each other. Uh, But I question just how many people watch this debate. And, you know, I'm, I'm a big skeptic about debates. I think they're more performance art than they are political in, you know, really influence politics. And so I don't think a lot changed here. Alexis, you were at the debate? Yeah, I was. You, you know, honestly, watching it, I think Governor Whitmer did an exceptional job. And really, I, I felt like you could really clearly see the contrast because oh. Governor Whitmer was able to talk about real policies, real actions. And when when Tudor Dixon was questioned on, well, how are you going to make this happen when she'd say something? You could tell she just kind of looked a little bit confused and wasn't able to give any clear um clear statements on on what her real plan was. And I just felt like, you know, you could tell from the very beginning that, um, you know, Tudor was smiling and very like, you know, she smiled with everything she said. And then literally two minutes in, that smile went away. And it did not appear that she was enjoying herself on that stage as Governor Whitmer was really, again, pushing her to explain how she was going to achieve some of what she what she claimed is her agenda. Rick, that's one viewpoint. Um, There were some folks who said, look, this is the sort of best forum for Tudor Dixon. I mean, for years, she's been a conservative media personality. So her in front of a camera, she knows what she's doing. Um, I think Tudor Dixon really showed up. And if there are were Republican funders who were wondering if she was capable of making the case for uh, a Tudor Dixon candidacy, that uh, she pulled that off. Um, That said, I agree with Rich. I don't think that uh, probably many minds were changed as a result of this, that people who liked Governor Whitmer were, you know, were given a good reason to stick with that. People who like Tudor Dixon were given a reason to stick with that. And, you know, Zoe, you've heard me say this a bunch of times that uh, people don't so much win debates. They either survive debates or they lose debates. Rich, I'm curious, you study this, so you know this better than any of us. Um, Who are the folks that haven't yet made up their mind, right? You're talking about if you're already voting for Whitmer, you know, she did, you think she did well. If you're already voting for Tudor Dixon, you know, you think she did well. But there is, you know, you've studied this. There is still a group of Michiganders who have not made up their mind. Who are these voters? Well, I will say that this cycle, they are increasingly tiny, Mm. a tiny group. And I'm not sure they have the ability to influence the race at this point because they're so small. But I think there's some still persuadable people. and We call them the leaners, uh, the people who haven't firmly committed but are leaning towards one candidate or another. Uh, But I think we need to broaden out. In the end, in Michigan, every election is decided by independent voters. 
primarily Southeast Michigan independent voters. And, you know, I listen to these debates through that lens. What are they hearing? How are they perceiving it? And what are the issues they care about? And that's why I come away with, you know, I'm not sure it influenced a lot of people either way. Alexis, to Rich's point, though, so the first gubernatorial debate was just in the Grand Rapids media market. Right. This debate actually was the first one that viewers in southeast Michigan, the most populous area, right, home to nearly half of Michigan voters, are seeing this debate. Is it... You're naughty. Is that making well, a difference? I, no, I mean, I, I agree with with what Rich is, is saying in, yeah. in concept. And, you know, he's he's an expert, so I trust what he's saying. I think um, what, what I, I don't know. I feel like sometimes one again, I think the bar was very low for what people expected of of Tudor Dixon. And I think that there for some people, I mean, if, if we're honest about this, they haven't in in. Southeast Michigan and Detroit news market, they've, she doesn't have ads running. So you really have not got a chance to see or hear her. Mm-hmm. So I think for some people, I, I could absolutely see, again, this being a moment where they, they finally feel like maybe they're mm-hmm. getting a chance to consider what the competition is. Um, so, so I do think it, I, I think it matters to a degree. But I feel like what we saw, though, to me, hardened and, and why I'm supporting the governor, um, and and I, I wonder if it's the same for for others. Yeah, she uh, Tudor Dixon used the debate to say, you know, I'm Tudor Dixon. Allow me to introduce myself, and you know, tried to start that ball rolling of making the case of actually less so why she should be governor, and more about why Gretchen Whitmer should not be governor, which is, you know, the role of the challenger. The very first thing that you've got to do is convince people that they want some kind of a change. Well, let's dig in a little bit to um, some of the issues. And one had to do with the Michigan Catastrophic Claims Association. And this is something that uh, Michigan radio reporter Tracy Samilton has just been doing amazing work. And I would suggest anyone who wants to understand the issue more, head to michiganradio.org. Again, find Tracy's uh, reporting. But I want to play this back and forth because I think it was really indicative of sort of this hour-long back and forth between these two candidates. You're going to get a bill for $48 because she gave you those checks just a little too soon. And we have to make sure we take care of those people who had that contract to make sure their lives are the same quality as they were before. Governor. Mrs. Dixon is showing you how ill-prepared she is for this job. The governor doesn't decide for the Michigan Catastrophic Claims Association what the checks are going to be. Mrs. Dixon. I'm glad she admitted that because her commercials are constantly saying that she gave $400 checks back to everyone. So I'm glad she's admitting that those checks didn't come from her and she actually isn't putting money back into the pockets of the Michigan people. So this was one of those moments, right, again, where I, I was... Uh, I don't know if surprised is the right word, but it really was this back and forth about an an issue that both candidates were jumping into. Rich Shuba, uh, were you surprised at sort of this the brevity at which the back and forths happened during this hour? Well, actually, I think as I listened to this again, this was one of Tudor Dixon's finest moments in that debate. And it was a good moment because she essentially called out Gretchen Whitmer for taking credit for those $400 checks and then claiming she didn't have control over those $400 checks. Uh, 
you know, this was a very quick exchange and uh, it showed how good Tudor Dixon is at being quick on her feet. You know, she had a couple of good points in this debate, and I think this was one of her finest. Alexis? You know, I I, I didn't, I don't necessarily agree with that. I think it was one of those moments where, um, to be honest, it was very brief. Um, to me, I think that what was most powerful to me was getting a chance to hear more of her stance on those issues that I'm really, really thinking about, like abortion and um, like what what she was talking about in terms of income tax and how she couldn't explain how she she would do it. Um, I, I think for me, it it, it didn't. I, maybe this goes back to a little bit of, of what um, Rich was saying was just you know people are where they are. Um, it, it did not shift anything for me. I I. I doubt that many people's minds were were changed about that, but it certainly was a moment where Tudor Dixon certainly, you know, looked like she had done her homework preparing for, uh, you know, preparing for uh, that debate. And we should also point out that, um, you know, this insurance, this auto insurance, Imbroglio, is one that has really separated Republicans and Democrats, you know, over the years. And she almost, I mean, she didn't, like, come up to the point of endorsing the the auto insurance uh, overhaul itself. But, you know, she did say, you know, that, you know, maybe you shouldn't have sent the checks out to the people that quickly. And that's not exactly the typical Republican position on something like that. I want to turn also now to another moment that I think for those of us who were at the debate, right, we were in sort of this media room and there's you can always sort of tell moments where it, it gets compelling, right, because it either gets really quiet or people sort of kind of, you know, look up uh, suddenly and really are paying attention. So let's turn to this next little bit. And this had to do with a moment where, you know, the Tudor Dixon campaign has really spent a lot of time, you know, digging into sort of what I'll say are culture wars and issues about parental rights and uh, the books that kids are or are not reading in schools. And so that has sort of been one of the backgrounds of the Tudor Dixon campaign. Um, But there was this issue of school safety brought up as well. Um, And so let's take a little listen to this. Do you really think books are more dangerous than guns? Like, Do you really think that books pose a greater danger to our kids than gun violence does? So, Alexis, this was a moment where Governor Gretchen Whitmer actually turned to Tudor Dixon, mm-hmm. right? Usually they're looking at the camera and she turned to her. Her, You could look in her eyes and tell that was a real moment. You could tell that that was something that touched her. And for me, that was the, the biggest moment of the debate because that's for me as a as a mom, as a fairly new mom, as I think about sending my daughter to school and stuff. These are things that I think about. And uh, to hear her question that on, like, what are you actually going to do to go after the problem that is leading to children being targeted, teachers being killed in their schools? Um, for me, that was that was the that was the single most important moment of the debate for me. Hmm. And I think we're already seeing um, in terms of the Whitmer campaign using that moment in some social media um, and showing that sort of stance. And it's something that I think is an issue that sometimes gets pushed down, right, when we're talking about economy and inflation. But again, is something that particularly, as you know, parents are, are especially after the Oxford Absolutely. shooting. So we are done with the debates. We are 11 
days from actual election day. And Rich, I want to turn to you and have you fill us in um, again, because you know this better than we do. What is voter enthusiasm looking like right now? Uh, It is insane right now, to be perfectly blunt about it. You know, Zoe, you and I talk a lot over the years about what motivation to vote looks like. Mm -hmm. And we do this scale. We ask voters on a one to 10 scale, how motivated are you to vote? And, you know, in early October, month away, we are already at 9.2 on that 10 point scale. Wow. Wow. I suspect we're going to be at a range of 9.5. Uh, in our last survey. And I just want to give some perspective to that. Yeah. Because we do this every election. So 2014, it was 6.6. 2016, it dropped to 5.8. And I, th- I remember having a conversation with people saying, this is the lowest I've yeah. ever seen. Yeah. In 18, it suddenly jumped to 9.4. In 29.7. So here we're looking at this spectrum. And the turnout here is going to look a lot like 18 and 20 and nothing like 14 and 16. People, you know, we're seeing these absentees come pouring in right now in Michigan. People are voting and they're voting across the aisle. Uh, There is a very high motivation to vote here. Well, I have to ask the obvious follow up. I mean, I can make a thousand different guesses about why, but you study this. Why is that? Well, we have, you know, we look at fundamentals of an election. Going in, I always ask myself, what what should the fundamentals say? And we're in a midterm election. This should be a terrible year for Democrats. They hold all the power in Washington. This should be a year where they just get wiped off the map historically. But something happened in June called the Dobbs decision that fundamentally jolted the dynamics of this election. And so now you have, you know, these Republicans motivated by their anti-Bidenism and you have Democrats wildly motivated over overturning Roe v. Wade. And those two cross currents are playing out. Usually we have one big current. This time we have two waves coming right at each other. And that's why everybody is motivated to vote. Right. Almost in these sort of also, you know, two waves in this opposite direction. Rick, I know you have been digging into absentee ballot numbers. What do we know right now, 11 days out? I mean, we're seeing numbers like we saw in the last election. This is the first election where you can do um, app. You can just go in and, and no reason absentee vote. And so or uh, ask for one. And so we're seeing numbers like we haven't seen before. Mm-hmm. Alexis. Yeah, you're, you're nodding. No, absolutely right. I think that there is so much enthusiasm and I think you're seeing people again mobilize and they're committed around these issues and saying they want to step up. Um, You know, I think even when you think about the GOTV effort that's happening, you've got, you know, President Obama coming on Saturday to Detroit. And my understanding is there's a whole list of celebrities that they're beginning to line up who will be in in Detroit um, throughout like the next week. So there's a really big effort to get people to show up at the polls, but also encouraging them to send out their absentee ballots. The city of Detroit worked with Citizen Detroit, um, which was founded by uh, Sheila Cockrell, another person who's just really extraordinary in terms of knowledge of this this government and good government. And I think they're beginning to see more people turn in their ballots. So it seems like it's working and they're getting people moving. Okay, we need to take a quick break. We'll be right back. 
Support for the Stateside Podcast comes from Kalamazoo College, offering a personalized education that combines critical thinking, curiosity, and creativity. Committed to preparing students for meaningful careers that make a positive impact on the world. More at kzoo.edu. Support for Michigan Public's Stateside Podcast comes from Lake Trust Credit Union, working to empower financial well-being for Michigan consumers, businesses, and communities. Committed to financial solutions and advice to support people and families. More information at laketrust.org. So, Alexis, as you alluded to, we have former President Barack Obama coming to Detroit tomorrow, stumping for Gretchen Whitmer. Look, you have been in a campaign or two or eight or nine or a million. (laughs) What does it tell you that a former president is coming in 11 days? What do we take away from that? Our takeaway is that they are leaving nothing to chance here Uh because I think, as Rich really explained to us, turnout is big on both sides, right? So we really don't want to be in a situation where, you know, you could have done something because at the end of the day, you don't get second place. You win or you lose, right? So you leave it all on the field. And I think the honest is, you know, we always expect it. Everybody who's who's kind of looked at this, when people would start paying attention, that numbers would begin to narrow, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So it really is going to matter that Detroit shows up, mm-hmm. that black voters show up, mm-hmm. um, because there's a real chance that, you know, you know not just the, the governor, I think there's a lot of different races that matter to us, speaking as a Democrat, mm-hmm. um, that we need to be out there supporting. We can't take anything for, for granted this year. Rich, to that point, I guess my question is, do surrogates help? Like I'm remembering Barack Obama coming to stump for Hillary Clinton in 2016. Trump, of course, won Michigan. Like how much can these visits actually do? Well, when you're Barack Obama, they can do a lot. <laughs> okay. uh, Barack, President Obama mm-hmm. is immensely popular yet, particularly on the Democratic side. You know, Republicans don't have anybody quite like him that can energize a base. Donald Trump can do that on the Republican side, but Donald Trump has problems with independence. Barack Obama does not. When this announcement came out that he was coming, I heard a lot of Republicans saying, oh, she's in trouble. They have to bring in Barack Obama. Mm -hmm. Well, they're no fools. They know the power that he has to gin up young voters and urban voters. Very important. I think the other thing it says is nobody's going to make the same mistakes they made in 2016. You know, yes, Barack Obama came in at the last minute, but he came into Ann Arbor. I I was just going to turn to, yeah, I was looking to Rick Pluta, actually, because I know Rick Pluta was at that rally Mm -hmm. in 2016 and was going to say exactly to that point, Rich Shuba, which Rick Pluta, you know, Barack Obama came to Ann Arbor. And to that point, there was a lot of conversation after that 2016 election about, you know, not necessarily Donald Trump winning Michigan, but sort of Hillary Clinton losing Detroit. Right. Well, and at this point, Turnout matters so much. And I know that it seems kind of, you know, obvious, duh, but people don't always turn out and turnout typically benefits, you know, the Democratic ticket. Like Rich said that surrogates are kind of like, yeah, that they might matter a little bit showing up at a coffee or a fundraising dinner, you know, a little one-on-one contact. Mm -hmm. But Barack Obama, 
That's different. He can speak to a crowd and tell them to, you know, line up, get to the polls and make sure that you bring a friend. Well, let's talk about another interesting surrogate that we are going to see next week, and that is Liz Cheney. (laughs) So the Republican congresswoman this week endorsed Democratic congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin. Slotkin is running in Michigan's new 7th congressional district. She's been in office for two terms, running against Republican state Senator Tom Barrett. I should note that we talked to Senator Barrett last week, the week before we spoke with Congresswoman Alyssa Slotkin, because this is one of the most competitive seats, not just in Michigan, but in the entire country. It is a true toss up. And it happens to also be one of the most, if not the most expensive congressional races. But I thought this interesting dynamic and Rich Shuba, I want to hear from you because I know you've been studying the seventh. What do you make of Republican Congresswoman Liz Cheney coming in again, so not just endorsing, but actually coming in to stump for Alyssa Slotkin, the congresswoman, next week? Well, first of all, if you live in Congressional District 7, I apologize to you. You are just <laughs> getting pummeled. Turn off the TV right now. With right. Oh, my gosh. It is an insane race, but it's insane because it's so close. And when I heard that Liz Cheney was coming in, it made perfect sense to me because this is a lean Republican seat. The difference here is Alyssa Slotkin has a very strong brand of bipartisan and independence. To bring Liz Cheney in a Republican really bolsters that brand that plays so well to the independent voters who are going to decide this race. And Slotkin's doing very well right now with those independents, and she's just going to try and keep them home to vote for her. The other thing is because of Roe v. Wade being overturned, Republicans I'm seeing continue to have a problem with moderate Republican women. You know, for 40 years in my political life, we've always been talking about pro-choice Republican women. And I think Liz Cheney sends a message to them that it's okay to vote for Alyssa Slotkin. That is the typical role of bringing in a surrogate of the other party, which is to, you know, in this case, Republicans, to give Republicans and Republican women, quote unquote, permission to vote for the Democrat in this race. Although Liz Cheney herself has become such a lightning rod because of her criticisms of Donald Trump voting for impeachment and you know leading the committee hearing on it, which effectively she did. Is Liz Cheney someone who fills that role in this particular election? That's just a, a question that I have. You know, I feel like this is so on brand for Alyssa Slotkin because when you get a chance to talk to her about her first race and what would happen when she'd knock doors and how there'd be some women that she would talk to that would be somewhat timid and not want to say that they were supporting her but really were supporting her. They showed up on election day and I think she's signaling once again, I'm still your person. I'm still with you. I think it'll be interesting to see the impact of this, you know, because like you're saying, it's so close Mm -hmm. and so fascinating. but again, I think it just it's really a smart, courageous move mm-hmm. on, on Alyssa's part. You know, one of the interesting things about independent voters is many of them are leaners one way or the other. And, and this is purely, you know, anecdotal. I'm not a scientific pollster, you know, like that, you know, fancy rich shuba. But one of the things that strikes me is how many voters I've talked to out there who actually one of the ways that they display their independence is even if they vote a straight 
party ticket, they will try to find one race, at least one race where they will cross over just so they can at least tell themselves that they were independent and always vote for one, you know, at least, you know, one of the other party. Well, to that point, I mean, again, the district that Congresswoman Slotkin represents right now, it went for Donald Trump in 2016. It went for Donald Trump in 2020. It went for Alyssa Slotkin in 18 Mm -hmm. and again in 2020. So Mm -hmm. to that point, I mean, that is some ticket splitting right there. Just going to say, I think we're underestimating how many people are going to split their tickets in some of these races. I think it's going to be a large amount this time. And Michigan's famous for it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, we're a purple state and we're also ticket splitters. I mean, you can see that with who we vote for statewide and also who we send to Washington, D.C. So as we end the show today, I want to turn to remarks that Republican candidate for governor Tudor Dixon made two years ago. They were on America's Voice Live with Tudor Dixon. It was on the Real America's Voice conservative network. This was in the wake of the killing of George Floyd in the spring of 2020 and the social justice protests that followed. There was a monologue from Dixon. It ran about six and a half minutes. We're going to play some of it now. I think it's important to hear directly from a candidate for statewide office, running, of course, to be the chief executive of the state. I want to note the next minute or so displays controversial views, some of which will likely be offensive. And just to set this up, Dixon preceded what she's about to say here by stating that Democrats have been molding public opinion for decades, and she suggests that they haven't yet gotten over losing the Civil War. And so when you say, wow, I never learned about Black Wall Street or the massacre in Tulsa or Juneteenth, which we can be angry about because the president planned a rally that day, but you never knew what it was until he did that. Why? Why didn't you know? Because you never learned in school, because Democrats don't want you to know. They don't want you to know that white people freed the slaves, white Republicans who get this worked with black Republicans. Yes, there were black Republicans in government way back then, but you are doing such a great job of hating yourself for them. They don't want you to know that history, the true history. They fed you your white guilt slowly for years. Finally, they had Barack Obama, who was going to bring hope and change to the country and unify everyone, but he and Michelle told you how badly you treated black people your whole lives, and you hated yourself just like they wanted. The Republican Party was labeled as the party of hate by the media arm of those who wanted power so badly, those who believed they could mentally destroy the voters and fundamentally change the United States. Rich Shuba, I want to turn to you. Who's the audience that Tudor Dixon is talking to here? Well, first of all, let me just say, anybody who heard that, my first reaction was yeesh. I mean, wow. Her audience, we have to remember at the time, was, you know, this right-wing, frankly, fringe viewer of these, you know, podcasts and these commentating jobs that she was doing. And I think As a candidate for governor, it is essential that she is required to speak out. This was only two years ago. Does she still believe this? And she needs to speak on this. My question is, where has this been? And why are we just getting it just now, 10 days before an election? I wish we had had it a lot earlier to digest. 
Alexis, what do you hear when you hear this? You know, I I, I think that it is – it's so deeply offensive on so many levels. I mean, you, first time when I heard it, I was really confused about like, okay, what is she doing here? When was this recorded? Like I, I just was it, – it was a lot to take in. But to hear her say white people freed the slaves, right, just eliminating the humanity of the people who I carry in my DNA, in my heart, who were enslaved. Just that one comment that white people freed the slaves, their people, their slaves. I mean, it's just it's it's so it says why when you hear she's an extreme candidate. She actually is. She actually is an extreme candidate. This just supports that. And somebody who is not fit to run the state of Michigan. I don't want to call somebody who says that my governor. So I I think this is an important moment. I think it'd be interesting to see what impact, if any, it has, honestly, because I think hopefully there will be some people who say also, like I'm saying, that can't be my governor. But we'll see. Bottom line, though, it's 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 disgusting. I requested an interview with Dixon or a representative of her campaign. An interview was declined. However, the following statement was from her campaign. I'm going to quote from some of it. Quote, once again, the liberal media is rushing to the aid of their favored candidate, Gretchen Whitmer, because she's been exposed as a failed governor and was completely unable to defend her record in her final debate with Tudor Dixon this week. End quote. I should note, I asked again specifically for a response to the question of whether Dixon still believes in what she said during her monologue. No response as the time that we're talking right now was sent back. Rick, that statement from the campaign, I should note, does not answer the question of whether or not Tudor Dixon stands by this statement that was from two years ago. And it's a fair question. I mean, she did this before she was a candidate for governor, but that doesn't mean that, you know, your entire life and certainly your recent life and your public life, you know, before you were a candidate for governor is is off limits. It deserved an explanation. It deserves an explanation. And the fact that she is not delivering one is only going to help sustain it with the absence of some kind of explanation as to why you know she said that in the first place. And we should also point out that as a factual matter, that the chronology that she's talking about completely ignores the fact that in the late 60s and the early 70s, there was a Southern strategy that the Republicans employed. Rich, I want to pick up on something really fundamental that Alexis said, which is this idea of representation and having a candidate for statewide office representing all Michiganders, right? Because when you become governor, you don't just represent one group. You worked for years for a Republican governor representing the state of Michigan. I guess I'm wondering what it means to have a candidate who is looking to represent all Michiganders for four years as the chief executive say say this. You know, if you are an elected official, you are required to represent everybody. That doesn't mean everybody's going to agree with you on a policy position, but you really have got to listen to the other side and be willing to hear what they're saying to you, even if they disagree with you. In the case of these comments in Tudor Dixon, I think they play to only one fringe side of the aisle. And I think 
You know, that's why I think these comments are so important that she respond to them. You know, what did you mean? Do you still believe this? Why did you say this? And we need to hear from her on this. Uh, and I would say that if a far right Republican or a far left Democrat had said something like this. You I, know, think, I, I totally agree with that. And I, I think the other piece to this, think about this. This person is going to have to look at urban policy. What happens to our school children? Right. If you don't even see us as people, how are you going to make sure that our children are taken care of, that our communities are safe, that you're actually investing in policies that are are respectful of us as as people? It just feels like that kind of thought process and that kind of belief will trickle down to how you function and how you lead as an executive. It may also I – was, I was just going to say I think it also may increase uh, pressure on Dixon and the Dixon campaign to come out with a detailed urban policy that, you know, what you're going to do to help fix uh, cities in Michigan and, you know, go down that. Because we haven't heard a lot of that. We haven't seen position papers on all of these, you know, sorts of, of – matters that typically we see candidates sharing as you go along in the campaign season. Rich Shuba, I want to give you the final word. I heard you jumping in. Yeah, I was just going to say I've done a lot of opposition research over the years. And in every campaign, I find nothing hurts a candidate more than their own words from history. Hmm. And you have to be accountable to those words. And the voters put it into a context. So I think we need to hear from the candidate on this. We're going to have to leave it there. I hope everyone is able to get some time this weekend, whether it is watching insane football games, whether it is opening up that bag of Halloween candy maybe a day before you're actually giving it out. I think everyone can use some self-care. And that's the Stateside It's Just Politics podcast for today. I'm Zoe Clark. You can find the full Stateside show at michiganradio.org. Today's episode was produced by Ronia Cabinsog. Other producers on our show are Mike Blank, Mercedes Mejia, and April Van Buren. Our podcast producer is Rachel Ishikawa. Our executive producer is Laura Weber Davis. Music in this episode comes from Blue Dot Sessions. Thanks so much for listening. <laughs>